Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Storybound. It's a podcast. It's a show that features the voices of today's top literary icons reading their essays, poems, and fiction. In every episode of Storybound, listeners are treated to their favorite authors and writers reading some of their most impactful stories designed with powerful and immersive sound environments. Season one stories include readings from Lydia Yuknovich, Matt Gallagher, Adele Waldman, Deeksha Basu, Nathan Hill, Mitchell S. Jackson, and more. Each episode is paired with a talented and unique musician to provide the score. Season two just launched. It launched on July 14th, and it includes episodes with authors like Stephanie Dandler, Lauren Groff, Tommy Orange, Yaag Yassi, Garth Greenwell, Juno Diaz, and more. At its heart, Storybound is a storytelling podcast. It's brought to you by the Podglomerate. You can listen today by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. Okay, everybody. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. It's nice to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have Genevieve Hudson back on the program for a second time. They are making their triumphant return, celebrating the publication of a new novel called Boys of Alabama, available from Live Right Publishing Company. It was great to catch up with Genevieve. Such fun talking with them. So that's coming up in just a second. Today's episode is brought to you by Doubleday, publisher of the novel Pizza Girl by Jean Kyung Frazier. Pizza Girl was hailed by the New York Times Book Review as fresh, funny, and bittersweet. It's about a pizza delivery girl who becomes obsessed with one of her customers. How about that? Pizza Girl by Jean Kyung Frazier, available now from Doubleday. Today's episode is also brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. Has there ever been a better time to listen to audiobooks? I don't think so. You can stay on top of your book club reading with audiobooks. You can multitask while you do it. You can be cleaning, you can be cooking, you can be working, you can be relaxing and listening to a book at the same time. It's incredible. Discover a range of new titles on audiobook from Penguin Random House Audio. Books like The Nickel Boys, the Pulitzer Prize winner from Colson Whitehead, or how about The Vanishing Half by New York Times bestselling author Britt Bennett. There are so many audiobooks available from Penguin Random House Audio. Get listening. They're available wherever audiobooks are sold. Okay, so let's get to the conversation with Genevieve Hudson. 
Their new novel, again, is called Boys of Alabama. It is generating rave reviews. It's out there now from Live Right Publishing. This is Genevieve Hudson, and the novel, one more time, is called Boys of Alabama. I had lived in Portland before I moved to Amsterdam. So I went to grad school in Portland. Um, That's right. That's right. You know what? I I talked to uh, your buddy, Chelsea Beaker. Oh, yeah. Chelsea is um, one of my absolute closest friends. She's actually like more like family to me. And we lived together in graduate school. We went to graduate school together. And um, yeah, she kept living. She's lived in Portland for most of this time. And um, yeah, so now we're both back in Portland and we get to hang out all the time, you know, in a pre-COVID world we did. Like, what do you do now? Can you sit in like the front lawn? Do, do, like, I feel like people are doing this now. Like they sit in a lawn. Yes. At a safe distance and like they have like a drink or something and chat in like lawn chairs. Yes. You know, we've had some front, front stoop, front porch hangs and, you know, I'm really close with her daughter too. And actually on the day that um, Boys of Alabama was released, I kind of came to have a long distance hangout with them and they, her, her daughter Harper had like made this like beautiful like crayon drawing and put it on their window to celebrate my book and it was very sweet and then we hung out from a distance that's adorable and very adorable so uh what's it like to release uh, a book amid like i mean i, I don't actually want to get into the sad it's like sad that book tours are canceled like let's not go there because we're just <laughs> right. gonna we're just gonna both cry but um <laughs> but like this is a very unique moment in american history not just with covid but now with uh, like we are recording this in early june with protests still mm-hmm. happening, still happening, riots happen, you know, breaking out in certain places, but obviously a, a period of uh, a lot of unrest and, uh, you know, social discord and righteous anger and all the rest. Like, what's it like to be living in the midst of this, having a book come out? Like, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's unique. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it feels so multi-tiered because the, I, I think I'll speak first to this idea of what was it like, you know, to have a novel come out in the COVID moment in time. And it's interesting because I am definitely a, an anxious person. I like to dress rehearse tragedy. I'm always thinking of like, what could go wrong and kind of catastrophizing in my mind. That's something I really like have to work against, I think, and to sort of not always lean into those limiting beliefs. And but I'm definitely prone to doing that. And you but even my mind could not have imagined (laughs) that there was a international health crisis and, you know, global pandemic that was going to be happening at the time of my launch. And there were a lot of things I was worried about or thinking about or, you know, definitely kind of planning for. And it, it puts things in perspective. I think, and it puts a lot of like anxiety and worrying of the like that I can do in perspective too, when something truly catastrophic happens and you, you know, I'm very privileged in a lot of ways because I was able to still, you know, do my work and a lot of the places that I was set to go and, you know, see bookstores I was going to visit in person or stores I was going to go to visit in person were able to it's a very different experience, but they were able to pivot and do something virtually. And a lot of people in the literary community, I think, have been really creative in their strategies to still, you know, get information about books out there and, you know, create conversations between 
you know, writers and celebrate debut novelists and all these things that, you know, I think that, you know, as a literary community, we've been really resourced in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, it's put things in perspective to just, to just think about how, um, like, like what does it mean, you know, when people are really like suffering in these big ways and our lives have been completely, um, changed in terms of like what we can do and how we can be with people to then also be thinking about a book launch and how the book can live within that ecosystem. Well, you know, people like in, in, in defense of books, like there's never been, I think a time where some deep reading, uh, you know, might be in order. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it, especially when people are, are shut, shut inside their houses and are dealing with a lot of, uh, alone time perhaps, or more quiet time and less distracted time than they might be used to. I've certainly read more during COVID than I read to, you know, than I was reading prior to COVID and I read a lot. And so I'm thinking maybe that could be something that, uh, you know, other people who aren't necessarily explicitly literary, literary might be getting into. Yeah, I think there is a moment right now where a, a lot of people are slowing down, are kind of looking to like to books to escape or to book for books to like comfort them or just like turning to different forms of like storytelling that feel important. And I also think that a lot of people don't want to be on the screen as much during this time because there's like screen fatigue and there's something about like a book that I think offers like a really good form of, um, I don't know, like just like connecting to your own like imagination in a way that's like not on a screen and feels like a slower pace that I think, I don't know, I know that I've really needed during this time. No doubt. And I feel like for me, like personally, just in recent times, like if I'm reaching, like I have to read so many different things, but if I'm reaching for books and I had to like game it out and do some math, I would say that I was reaching for either poetry or narrative nonfiction or a lot of collage nonfiction for a, a long time in my life. Like I was, that was sort of like what I was sort of snooping around for when I was out at the bookstore. And then during COVID, I have found myself turning to fiction. Like I'm finally like, okay, like f the real world is just a fucking shit show. Like I want to go live in a fantasy realm. I'm ready. <laughs> 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 yeah, and there is something kind of about having like a a prolonged like like a story, like a novel to immerse yourself into that I have found to be like something I've been turning to too. Yeah. I've been like reading a lot of novels in yeah. this moment. Yeah, what have you been reading? I'm reading right now The Knockout Queen, which is so good. Have you read that? No. Who's it by? I'm 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 out of the loop. Rufy Thorpe. Um, and it came out, I think a couple months ago, but it's just this, it's actually set in LA, interestingly enough. And it just feels like this, this kind of book that's like really has a really like strong, powerful voice and is funny and also dark and tender. And it kind of feels like the right thing to read right now. Perfect. Yeah. I've been reading uh, a lot of like mid-century like the mid-century misogynists <laughs> as they're uh -huh. they often called it's just because you know how yeah. you, you know how you have like gaps in your reading where like oh my god like this is in the canon or whatever and i've never read these people or i haven't read them enough and i can mm -hmm. i can experience a lot of guilt around that like oh i'm such a slacker and so i read uh some saul bellow 
Oh yeah. Have you ever read Saul Bell? Like I was like, I don't know if I just if it was just this one book or if it, maybe I misread it, but I was like, wow, this guy just hates women. Like, mm-hmm. like, like I can't even believe it. Like I can't unless maybe I'm maybe I'm reading too much into the fiction. Maybe he was. Uh, I don't know, but that was the sense that I got from reading it. And then I've been reading some Philip Roth too, which has been interesting and enjoyable. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of where I've, I've been at lately. Uh, what what did you read by Saul Bellow? Uh, Humboldt's Gift. Oh yeah, I haven't read that. I read Herzog, and what was it? There's like one that the some like the Augie one, or I can't remember, like the Tales of Augie March, or I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, he's hard for me to read. I read him in grad school a lot because I think I had the sense too that he was an important voice that you know, I was supposed to, um, connect with. And I really did have a hard time really. Um, I think I wanted to, I, at that point in my life, I wanted to like, uh, the, maybe the, that style of writing more than I intuitively did. And I agree that there was like, I encountered a lot of misogyny while reading him. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, I mean, the guy won the Nobel prize for literature. He did. And uh-huh. so, and so you're like, Oh, well, I mean, I gotta at least be familiar with this or I should, I feel like the you know, 20th century literature, he's one of the preeminent novelists and, um, certainly like has like a, a, an incredible facility, uh, with language. Like there's no denying that he can, mm-hmm. he can write a sentence, but it was just this, especially in the context of the current cultural moment, it was like, wow, it just really felt dated. And, uh, I, I'm always like, I know you're not supposed to do this. I know you're just supposed to like live in the fiction and never conflate the author. I always conflate the author with the fiction. I'm always looking for the author. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know how people don't do that. Like, how can you not be thinking about who the author is? So I want to, I think, read a Saul Bellow biography and maybe I will do that and try to get some context and then try to have that biographer on the show if that biographer is, is still with us because um, it can be like it can be interesting to think of what gets celebrated by a culture uh, in the realm of the arts and I guess in particular the literary arts and then how times change and you know a perspective on a body of work might change with it. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that what you bring up about conflating fiction writers with the fiction they're writing. And, you know, I, I, I definitely don't believe that, you know, all writers are you know, secretly writing their lives into their pages or that you should, you know, definitely always read in kind of on that level to the to the text. But I do think that there's something about this divorce between like the author and the thing that they've written that does feel like a little, um, I, that feels like a, like a school of thought that comes from like a certain time that did have like a little bit more of like maybe some like masculine energy behind it in terms of like, you know, the thought, like the author's imagination is this like powerful otherworldly force that, you know, kind of writes this thing that's then very divorced from the person writing it. And, you know, I think we all know that, our like imaginations are not boundless necessarily. They're limited by our consciousness and like the way that we are as like an individual in the world and the things that we take in and the way we process that and like our emotional topography. And so of course any fiction or any book is a product of that writer and like the synthesizing that they're doing in their way of looking at the world and the things they're taking in from their life. So I agree with you. It's really hard for me to read a book 
and not think a little bit about the writer behind it. Um, not necessarily thinking like, oh, they're writing about their life, but like what in their life made them write this right? or this observation, you know, the way they're looking at this person and describing this thing, like they thought that, you know, they've, they've thought that before in their real life. Of course, of course. Yeah. And I think like, obviously there's auto fiction and there's fiction that's closer to the bone and more direct. And then, you know, somebody writes something that's more like uh, imaginative or fantastical or whatever, then, uh, you know, there's a little bit, I think more, material between the author and the reader, but they're still in there somewhere. Of course they are. Mm -hmm. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, so I want to ask you before we get too deep into this about, uh, because we're recording in early June, of 2020, I, I kind of, ha- and, and this could air a while from now, but I want to at least get your thoughts in this particular moment, uh, and ask you if you've been out in the streets in Portland, what has your experience of this moment been? How has it affected you and so on? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have been, um, doing a lot of thinking about, you know, my, responsibility as, um, I'm not like, a as, as somebody who's a, who's not, who's not a black person, but who wants to be an ally to, um, to like the black community. And also like, I feel like it's very important for us all to be working to deconstruct, um, the society that we live in that centers whiteness, that is white supremacist. And that has like so long, like, contributed to, uh, the racial injustice that now like we're seeing once again, come to a head everywhere. And, um, I, you know, it's been on my mind a lot, um, as I think it's been on everybody's mind. Um, you know, I have not gone to any of the protests, the out, the, the actual physical protests in Portland. I think they're so important, but I, um, you know, my form of activism hasn't traditionally been, um, going to marches or protests and maybe that would change in the future. But I think I've found other ways that feel good to me to kind of contribute to, um, the, like the, the, I guess like the initiative or like the, like what we need to be doing to fight like racial injustice. And to me, that's been like, really like reaching out to, um, 
a lot of my black friends and checking on them, asking how I can support them, trying to um, like uplift and amplify um, as a writer, black owned bookstores and like voices that I think um, have been like really effective in my learning on social media too, and sort of trying to like share like different resources for people and also to listen. Um, I don't think there's a perfect way to do this. And I am, you know, continually, you know, kind of trying to think of like how, what is the best way to like show up that doesn't take up space, but that can amplify other voices that shows and it helps to educate people maybe that like aren't as, you know, involved in these critical discussions and how do we bring them into the fold too. So I think there's just been a lot of like listening and thinking and having conversations and sort of evaluating my place as a, as a non-black ally too yeah. and how I can do that the best yeah. possible. Yeah. yeah. The velocity of learning is something uh-huh. that has, has really struck me uh, in my own experience of it. Like just, just going online for 15 minutes and reading three different takes and my head is just spinning, you know, because, mm-hmm. uh, they're all good or they're all good and they all contradict one another. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, you think you've landed on the thing and then you read something else and you're like, Oh, like, like I'll give you an example. Like, uh, white people need to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we do. Absolutely. And then I'll go to the next take and it'll be like white silence is a form of violence. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm like, Yes, it is. We need to speak. Right. Right. So I can get like this, this ping ponged feeling where I'm like, oh my God, like that, like what, where is the truth and what is the appropriate way of doing things? And you can get a little bit, um, punch drunk, but I think that's just the process. Uh, you know, I think you have to be willing to go in there and get uncomfortable and deal with a lot of takes and try to find, Mm -hmm. try to find your way through it in a way that makes the best sense to you. Uh, I feel at this particular moment, and we're, we're recording this, I should, let's just mark it. We're recording this on June 3rd, 2020. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if this resonates with you at all, but I feel like things yesterday turned uh, in terms of the general vibe. I think the initial venting of anger, uh, which I want to make sure I flag it, is a righteous anger. You know, it it seemed to cool, and maybe the the cops cooled too. Hopefully, they cooled. Uh, and I just felt like yesterday's protests were really peaceful and really big, mm-hmm. and it made me feel good. It made me feel like okay, like like hopefully, like holy shit, like this isn't stopping. And the like the moral authority of the movement is huge. Uh, like the I feel like the strength of the moral argument that is being made is sort of. Uh, uncontestable and when it is done peacefully and at at the at the volume that it seems to be happening all over the country and all over the world at a certain point uh it just be it just becomes undeniable do you know what i'm saying like i don't know there was like a real surge of hope within me i was like maybe something really good is going to come of this like is that too much to ask for (laughs) Yeah, I, I I hope that I hope you're right. I think, you know, to me, like, I think that there has been a real sense of urgency in the last few days that has felt, um, you know, so like really encouraging to see like the amount of people uh, and voices like rally around this cause with such urgency. But, you know, I think that I, 
what I want to sort of think about is how do we sustain this? Like, how do we keep this momentum going after, you know, when the, when the news cycle moves as it so often does, you know, I was reading this poem by, um, Dinez Smith, um, and it was, uh, published in 2014 and it's this poem, not an elegy for Mike Brown. And it could have been written yesterday or this week. And it was, you know, six years ago. And, you know, you look at, you listen to recordings from the civil rights movement. And again, it's like this, a lot of this stuff could be said freshly today. And so that, you know, it's such a systemic longstanding problem that reaches back to like the earliest days of our country. And so I think for me, I'm like, okay, how do we make sure that, that some actual tangible systemic change begins to happen now because the problems are so big that they're going to take like sustained comprehensive effort. And so I think some of it is about like, how do we make sure that people are still posting and talking and that this is the full on the forefront of their minds when, you know, there's like another crazy thing that Donald Trump has done or when, you know, we've are kind of um, like, collective imagination has moved on to the next thing. Like how do we make sure that the wheels are still turning on these important issues too? Yeah. Well, I think white people need to take the lead. That'd be one thing, like one thought. And then I, like I'm, I'm persuaded by the logic that there have to be specific asks tied to this movement. Like you can have all of these protests. They can be huge. They can be peaceful. They can be um, emotionally resonant and powerful but if you don't ask the people in power for specific things, then it becomes much easier to dismiss the mm-hmm. the very legitimate concerns of protesters once things do simmer down, which they inevitably will. It can't last forever at this kind of fever pitch. Um, and then, you know, on the other side of the coin, and this sort of circles back to what you were talking about w- with regard to catastrophizing things. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I uh, I worry a lot about Trump and how he is going to respond to all this. And I think rightly so, especially after he tear gassed and Mm. um, had rubber rubber bullets fired at uh, peaceful protesters in Washington so he could stage his bullshit uh, photo op with the Bible in Uh. front of that church, which, uh, you know, I think it's the most shameful photo ever taken of a a sitting U.S. president. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was reading about Russia And I was reading about, and I know, you know, some people out there think this whole Russia thing is overblown. I'm not one of them. I think Trump is in cahoots with Putin, and I think he aspires to be like him. And I was reading about how Vladimir Putin rose to power and consolidated power in 1999 with these apartment fires in Russia that he blamed on Chechens. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, to get into my catastrophizing mind, and I don't want to sound too paranoid, but with a guy like Trump who, who really has, like, no floor like there's no low to which he will not sink do we really do we really think he has like a a conscience about anything at this point i mean the guy will do anything he'll say anything uh you know if it'll benefit him and what Mm -hmm. i what i worry about especially with an election coming up and with you know it feels like trump doing poorly it feels like he's not polling well and a lot of people are sick of his act i worry that there could be some sort of uh dirty dealing you know, from his side of the line where there are domestic acts of terrorism that are perpetrated by white supremacists or Trump sympathizers that are then blamed on 
protesters. And so the reason I mention it now is that it hasn't happened. Hopefully it won't happen. But if shit like that does go down and he tries to use it as a pretext to consolidate power and to order martial law or to take over state governments, you know, to, to somehow federalize power so that he could, for example, you know, put boots on the ground on American soil, or I think, uh, you know, assume federal control of the national election, which I think is what he wants to do because he's scared uh, of losing at the ballot box. Uh, does that sound too crazy? Like, am I am I spiraling? <laughs> um, well, I mean, maybe I'm not the right person to ask because I have a lot of similar fears and I've thought a lot about a lot of the issues you just brought up. I mean, I think, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm pretty sure Trump already has issued martial law. He did it two days ago. Well, he tried to get he he tried to say in front of, uh, you know, in Lafayette Park or whatever, that he was going to put American military on the ground. But Mark Esper, his secretary of defense, pushed back this morning. Oh, OK. And, and what I suspect happened. And, and that's not to say that it won't happen. Things are so fluid right now that, you know, by the time this airs, we could be, you know, looking at a, at a tank in our streets or something. But. Um, what I suspect happened is I, su I suspect that the chiefs, like the respective chiefs of the armed services probably said, are you fucking kidding me? Right. Um, and not to, not to mention governors of, uh, you know, of states who said, you know, that's a, that's an overreach. So I think there was enough pushback to at least put a pin in that for now, but that's the way these guys work. You know, they sort of float these possibilities that violate norms and stretch the bounds of law to their limit. And it sort of preps, I think, the citizenry to expect that it might be possible. It's dangerous. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we, we shouldn't let it happen. We should make sure that we push back hard against that because that's not at all what the armed services are supposed to be for. Well, he also, I mean, I think that that is something that he is, uh, it's a tactic he uses a lot, is just putting ideas in people's minds um, in order to, I mean, even if it's not based in fact, which I mean, I think you're right that the martial law idea maybe is like planting a seed so that it starts to normalize so that if he were to create to take action there, people have already had it like in the national discussion and it feels a little bit more like a possibility um, that they're warmed up to or expecting or bracing for or whatever it looks like. But, you know, I think that he often does like redirect conversation or kind of like just consolidate attention through saying something, even if it's not real, you know, and it just puts the idea in someone's mind that that is a possibility. Like even with the conspiracy theories that he floated with Joe Scarborough, even, you know, just saying something like, well, I don't know if it's true, but it seems like right. he could have murdered this woman. And then, you know, even if it's not uh, grounded in any facts, people are associating Joe Scarborough with like someone's murder, you know? And so like that association has been made and those associations are very powerful because then people are having to do the work to disprove them instead of him having to do the work to prove it. You know, he's just created like the situation and now that's the conversation. Yeah. And yeah, he's like a master of that, like all these false flag operations. And I think like, you know, I think he's laying the groundwork to try to blame all of this stuff on quote unquote Antifa. Like whatever, yeah. whatever the fuck Antifa is. And, and uh, like it should be noted that autocracies around the world often create like basically fictionalized organizations with names like Antifa. 
that they then <laughs> use that they then use uh, to kind of create a boogeyman um, and to justify you know the consolidation of power or the dismantlement of the rule of law and. I just feel like I, you know, I can smell it. He's, he's constantly talking about domestic terrorism and Antifa. And if anything happens um, of that nature on American soil in the weeks ahead, I can almost guarantee you he's going to say it was Antifa. It mm -hmm. was Antifa. And this is why we need to do X, Y, and Z so that I can keep you safe. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to your earlier point too about like, consolidating power and kind of taking having the federal government take over the election that is something i think when he was first elected i really was like he is going to do something like what if he never and again maybe this sounds super paranoid but i was already you know just the way that he um uh i guess like thinks about and talks about power and his role and the ways that he sees like um, his pet, like how far he sees his power reaching. Um, I could imagine already then a situation where he would not leave office because of some, you know, something he cooked up, whether that was like, it's not safe enough for an election. The election has been rigged. Um, you know, I need to, we need to postpone this because of X, Y, and Z, and I will remain in power or some big fundamental kind of shifting in ways of like kind of taking democracy slowly. And what I think has been some of the most alarming like lead up to this is the way that Republicans have completely united to justify and support his actions. And I think they... I mean, some of them must feel way in over their head at this point because Fuck, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? Fuck them. They should oh, be yeah. like they should be voted out. Like anybody, yes. anybody in a position of power who is standing by watching this happen and, yeah. and enabling it and is too scared to speak out because it might yeah. it, it might mean their job um, isn't isn't worth the office that they hold. You know what I'm saying? And like I have. I don't know. That makes me like the, I totally agree with you. And it makes me so frustrated to see people who clearly know better standing by going along with this merely to preserve their own seat of power. Um, Absolutely. And because they think I think they on some level are deluded and believe that like he couldn't really that, you know, that they, that they're always going to have some semblance of control. And I'm like, you don't have control of this man and you're enabling him to do some like nasty stuff. <laughs> well, and you know, I don't, I think that expect the worst, mm -hmm. always expect the worst. If like, however low you think he is, know that he will go lower. Mm -hmm. And, and, and like, like the kind of paranoid thinking that, uh, you know, the quote unquote paranoid thinking that I was getting into, expect that. Mm -hmm. and, and then if it doesn't happen, okay, well then you're, you're pleasantly surprised, you know, mm -hmm. but that's kind of, I mean, if you think about where we were three and a half years ago to where we are now, I think expecting the worst would be a good strategy in terms of how we can anticipate his behavior. And I think with pressure intensifying, especially if the election is not looking good for him, um, you're going to, you're going to see behavior out of him that is shock or should, you know, it's pr probably not going to be shocking based on precedent, but is shocking in the context of American history and, and uh, every single president who preceded him. And, you know, we just uh, we're through the looking glass. It's going to be very rocky. Yeah.
So let's uh, let's talk about Alabama, <laughs> um, because, you know, there is, I think, believe it or not, as much of a, um, you know, a, a shift as it is to go from what we were talking about to Alabama. There is a line, I think, to your childhood in the Deep South and to the unrest that we're living in now and to the world of your book. Like, it's not completely unrelated. And we talked a bit the last time you were on the show about your childhood in Tuscaloosa, right? Yes. Okay. So your mom, I remember, was a professor, is a professor, is an academic. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. Yeah. She's retired, but she was a professor for got, many years. Got it. Okay. And so you uh, have written a book that um, fictionalizes the Alabama of your youth and also like brings in kind of a, like a supernatural element. Um, can you talk about the decision to go there? Like, How did that happen? The supernatural element. Yeah, yeah. Like, how do you arrive? Like, I'm just curious how, like, writers um, might be, you know, working inside of a milieu that is familiar to them and is part of their biography. And then suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, you know, and by the way, he can bring plants and animals back from the dead. Like, where did where did that come from? You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there is, um, there's especially, like, maybe... 10 years ago or so, and I was like kind of first starting to write more seriously, I was very taken with um, books that would not not just like magic realism, but books that kind of would take one almost like a fairy tale trope or some sort of normalized magic and integrate it into like an otherwise like very realistic world. And how that... Um, kind of created in some ways like a metaphor for which to like you could read some of the text through or just kind of created something that I found like a really like interesting um, way to like kind of like more embodied um, issue for like characters to have to work through. Um, and, and I think that like also in some ways I was interested, like it's always been sort of hard for me to make things like plot has always been something I've struggled with as a fiction writer and making things happen in stories or in novels has for a long time was something that like really, and it still does like kind of befuddled me. And I was much more interested in sort of the, the emotional landscape of a character or like the interplay between two characters or um, even like a setting or a scene than I was about like something happening. And in some ways, like, giving uh, bestowing like kind of magical thinking onto a narrative was a way to create action and movement that I found really interesting to play with. And it gave me something to respond to in the text that um, I really liked kind of messing around with and thinking through. Um, And so I started, you know, reading a lot of writers that did that. I think one of the first people I really gravitated towards was Angela Carter and Amy Bender and Carmen Maria Machado, too, and kind of how they would bring in this, like, one or two elements of, like, true, strange weirdness that is impossible in our life. And the main character kind of was endowed with this. And in this case, Max, the narrator of Voice of Alabama, you know, like you said, he has this power to bring plants and animals back from the dead and... Um, I, when I started writing the book, I didn't know that he was going to have this magic power, but I had written a lot of stories that did deal in magic realism. So what wasn't that far afield? Um, but 
you know, I think it came to me this where I, I just saw him as this like tender, heavy, like emotional kid who was strange and queer. And I, I kind of had this visual image of him resurrecting this, um, this dead mouse. And it was so like visceral to me. And I kind of saw this as his way of like contending with, um, some of the, like his displacement in the world and some of like the death he was seeing around him. And it kind of just started feeding into it from there. So it wasn't something I had always like architected out, but it was something that kind of grew out of a history of writing into that genre and then kind of dealing with the emotional heaviness of my main character. I like the idea of being like as a writer who struggles with plot as well. And mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of writers of literary fiction are writers of literary fiction because they struggle with plot. That's why they wound up in literary fiction. <laughs> That's Other, true. Otherwise we would all be making tons of money writing like, uh, you know, horror novels or, uh, romance novels. But, um, <gasps> you know, I think that this notion of, uh, you know, introducing elements of magical realism into the story simply to have something to react against or primarily to have something to react against and to give the story some movement. Like that sounds like a, that sounds like a good idea. Like if you're, if you're out there listening and you're struggling with plot, <laughs> like get some, bring some magic into it and see what happens. Yeah. You, because you have to kind of get out of your own expectations when you do that. And it, it kind of fires something up in your imagination that I think is interesting. Wow. Like I'm working on a, maybe I'll do that. Maybe, uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe in my, maybe in my really navel gazy, self-involved, uh, like auto fiction, I will suddenly, you know, have the power to, uh, read minds or something. I don't know what it'll be, but right. It might reignite the whole thing. It could, it could be like, we might wake people up midway through as they're like <laughs> nodding off. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then let's talk about, I, I read the piece that you wrote in L, which I feel like is a nice companion piece to the novel. Um, and it serves like as a kind of Rosetta stone, uh, in some ways for it. I think that was kind of how you were conceiving of it. But this this notion of the muses of your youth, you know, these boys that were, um, uh, you know, a part of your life in your childhood, two of whom passed away, correct? That's right. And so you had kind of boyfriends uh, growing up in Tuscaloosa, still not completely, uh, you know, aware of or having come to terms with um, your queer identity like kind of figuring it out. And you had uh, these boys in your life who like not only had interest in you as a, like a girlfriend, um, but also sort of like taught you, like, I mean, you can probably explain it better than I, but it seems like they kind of taught you about your own relationship to gender identity and like, uh, you know, kind of like helped to articulate some of the fascinations you had with boyness. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I wrote that piece really to kind of work through my own, um, thoughts and, um, kind of feelings around having written a novel with like a young male narrator and kind of was really curious about like, you know, as somebody who is queer and, you know, wants to center, you know, a queer experience and often writes, about, you know, either with female narrators or non-binary narrators, it was interesting to me that, like, the novel that I really felt like I wanted and needed to write centered on this group of boys in Alabama with a male uh, protagonist. And 
but when I looked back to my childhood, it also seemed um, like it made a lot of sense that those are the stories that I felt really present to because, you know, growing up um, in Alabama, I was really taken with um, boyhood. And, you know, I was quote unquote a, a tomboy, but I really felt in a lot of ways, like when I was, especially when I was a lot younger, like, you know, before the, before puberty hit, you know, and up until like 10 and 11, I was just, you know, I felt very much like a boy and I would only dress in boys clothes. I, you know, skating was a big part of my life. And I, you know, like I was the only, you know, not like girl that skated. And I really would look at these boys and see myself and wanted to kind of emulate and imitate the way they dressed, the way they held their bodies, you know, their posture, the way they talked to each other. And I was really kind of doing a study of, of like young masculinity in a lot of ways. And <laughs> I, 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 don't, I, I don't mean to laugh, but I'm thinking of like myself as like a, a, stra- <laughs> right. a, a straight guy, like a straight pubescent boy um, who like just wants to make out with you. And you're like, actually, I'm doing an anthropological thing here. If, if you could just. Exactly. Exactly. Like how exactly did you, you know, get your, like your, the neck of your shirt pulled in that way? <laughs> You're like, if you could just stand still, I'd like to copy your posture, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that's really what, you know, what it was for me was this kind of, like, interest. And, like, then I quickly started to realize that, you know, I, I don't know, in some ways I, like, don't think I was brave enough to hold on to that gender identity through puberty. It was, like, I really am so in awe of, like, queer people that were, like, socialized as women that, like, stayed, like, that as they were going through puberty, but I had no, like no role modeling for that and was like, I guess this is the time when I, you know, become a, a woman and like, you know, kind of start to like embrace these other sort of gender norms more. But yeah, I think that like, I still was reading like all these stories that were like coming of age stories about like young boys. And, um, so I think that there was like, this story was sort of like, uh, just like growing inside of me for a really long time. And I was really interested in like kind of exploring that world of like, (laughs) yeah, like that I was in of like young boy culture and what it was like to integrate that from the outside. You were like the Jane Goodall of Alabama boy culture, (laughs) like observing. Um, so I want to, I want to ask you, cause I read, you know, you read that, uh, or you wrote in L that two of these boys, uh, died, I guess they died young. Like, can you talk about what happened? Like what happened to these kids? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in Tuscaloosa and there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people just stay there. And I think, you know, it was common to um, turn to, like, um, especially, like, I think especially thinking about, like, the people I was friends with were often, like, very creative, very imaginative, not very well resourced. And, you know, they had big ideas for their lives that they weren't always able to, like, access. And a lot of that had to do with, like, class. And there was a lot of drugs that abounded in Tuscaloosa and, um, you know, there, by the time that my two, my two, two of these friends that I was close with passed away, um, when I was in my early twenties and I was no longer as close to them then, like we drifted apart, but I still, you know, knew them and would like stayed in touch sometimes. And 
Um, I know that both of them died through like complications with drugs, but the way that they died was really kind of kept pretty secret and private. So I don't know the specifics, but I know that they both had like long battles with, um, with drugs and that that's ultimately in some one way or another, what, what happened to them. My God. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's an absolute epidemic and yeah. It's always going to be there to some extent. People are always going to want to take drugs and certain, a certain subset of the population is not wired for it. Like they have like an allergy and mm-hmm. it's it's never going to go away entirely. But there's clearly something happening, I think, in terms of uh, the way we have organized our society that is creating enormous pain. And I feel like people are medicating it. I've lost a, one of my best friends I lost to opiate overdose accidental. So... I'm so um, sorry. Yeah, it touches. I think it touches just about everybody's life at this point. You're either, you know, like one to what is it, six degrees of separation. I think it's probably less than six. Most of us could point to somebody we know, um, either closely or distantly, who's lost their life uh, to substance. But, um, I, you know, I, I think about uh, like why it's so rampant, and then I also think about people that I have lost who have not been so close to me that I knew in childhood, but, you know, really haven't, or really didn't like never talk to again after say seventh grade or something. And mm-hmm. you find out something happened to them and it stays with you for the rest of your life. And I think it's interesting the way we grieve people we might've known once, but only for a brief time and then never again, or even people that we didn't know well at all, but who were like part of the scenery of our lives like you know we saw them in the hallway at school or mm-hmm. you know they were the greater two below us and we sort of knew them because we once like stood in line at a keg with them you know what i'm saying like there could be this passing interaction and then something tragic happens and i have people like that in my life they they haunt my imagination in ways that they probably never would have ever suspected yeah yeah i relate to that um yeah, it's like, it is interesting, you know, the, that time in our lives, those, I don't know, that those like 10 years really, like I think we're between like 10 and 20, I think are so, so formative. And the people that I knew then and that like, you know, as you said, I think really beautifully like made up the scenery of our lives, even if, even if our interactions with them, you know, were, were limited feel really profound. And I often think back, you know, there's probably some sort of like science behind like that time and maybe like when our brain chemistry and how it's like imprinting on us or something. It's such a formative time, you know, for our bodies too. But I, um, I just think back to the people that I knew then and they, I really do reflect on them more than people from like any other time in my life still. And like the, they just feel like they're like, they really impacted me and imprinted on me in that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, I guess like uh, high school and college, you know, childhood and college in terms of friends integrating themselves into your lives, like it doesn't get more powerful than that. And it's really hard to replicate as an adult. Mm-hmm. Like it can happen. Like you can develop, I think a friendship in adulthood that you know, it, it's possible, but it's not likely because of the shit we got to do as adults. Like we're all hustling and trying to keep a roof over our heads. And, um, I don't know, maybe you get more jaded or something. I don't know what happens, but it just seems like it's harder to develop really close friendships and to maintain them in adulthood. And then I think there's also the issue of people 
moving all over the place, you know, which didn't used to be the case uh, for human beings. You know, we used to exist in tribal culture. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I think that up until really the 20th century, like uh, maybe even like the middle of the 20th century, that was still sort of the case. You kind of like lived in your hometown and you had extended family around. And then, you know, it got to the point where jobs started taking people all over the place or, you know, people fled their homeland because of like a dust bowl or something. And you lose your roots and you lose your, your tribe. And, uh, I don't know. I feel, I feel some responsiveness to the theory that even if, like, even if you have a strong family, or you're partnered and you have like a nice little, you know, close knit group of like five or 10 friends or whatever. It's not enough. Like, I feel like we're actually wired to have like, you know, like 150 people around us. Like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, I do feel like this like lo- lack of connection is something that like profoundly impacts us. I mean, like loneliness in, in America is, like is is a really an epidemic and like also like a cause of death and a lot of people too. And, you know, it's really, it's, it's profound. Um, and like you said, like, even if you have, you know, one or two people that you're really close to or that you live with, like there's, I think there's still like an ache for like a greater sense of community and solidarity. And maybe like also the, this pandemic is like heightening is like really like highlighting that even more. Well, I was going to say, you know, uh, talking as we are in early June of 2020, like I've looked at the protests in Los Angeles and, and seen, you know, the other protests in other cities on TV. And something that strikes me about the moment is how perfect, you know, perfectly aligned the stars have been in terms of COVID and people being on lockdown for two months and mm-hmm. feeling a, a stronger sense of isolation than they otherwise would. Uh, obviously there's economic impacts that are, um, fueling people's unrest, but uh, like just to, just to speak about this epidemic of loneliness in America, I think people feeling socially isolated or maybe even more so unable to distract themselves with busyness to the degree that they normally do Mm -hmm. forces people to confront the pain inside, (laughs) you know, like you Mm -hmm. have to, you have to contend with your inner life a little bit more in quarantine than you would if you're out like being a busybody all day long. And I think that some confluence of all of these different factors have uh, come together and produced maybe a moment that has more energy in it than previous protest movements have exhibited. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, it just feels like there's a lot of different factors at play. Like I, if people don't have work, if there's 40 million people out of work, like, hey, let's go protest. You know, might as well. And we can get outside and not have to sit in our living room and think about how lonely we are or whatever. Yeah, it's like it is definitely something I think that unites and brings people together and gives meaning. You know, it's like, so, like you know, as we've like acknowledged, like it's such an important um, like it like the like they're what people are protesting is like of like the, the highest importance. And I think giving people like also having something that feels like, you know, deeply um, urgent to rally around is like also like a, gives like meaning and purpose. And right now I do think, you know, I personally have been confronted with in a lot of ways, like this question of like, what 
gives my life meaning. You know, when you take away like a lot of the like small daily distractions and busyness of our lives, like a lot of that is like distraction that can like keep us away from like those deeper questions because you're just, you know, kind of filling, filling time in a certain way. And I really had to sit with like, okay, like if I can't do this, you know, what is like, what gives my life like meaning? Like, what is it that like my purpose is what, um, makes a day feel like it was, um, like important or like what makes it feel as though like it, I I don't know. I think I've so for so often, like really associated, um, a feeling of, um, like of being good or like being right or being like a good, like valid in my life with like accomplishing something or having productivity. And I think like having less productivity has made me like have to sit with the fact that like I have to be able to see value without that kind of quantifiable action. And it's worth noting that there are millions of people all over the world who seem to lead reasonably contented lives without having achieved something that the culture claps for. Exactly. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, like mm-hmm. there are, uh, most people on earth don't even have that in the realm of possibility. Um, uh, and they might even be happier for it, to be honest with you. Like I'm, I'm open to that possibility too. Like you have some, um, you know, I don't know, some more like, uh, what, what's the proper, uh, descriptor, you know, like a culture that just doesn't have any connectivity to, um, the fame culture that we swim in every day online and elsewhere and is more local. Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe they have some version of it that exists within the bounds of that culture. But I just, I often remind myself like, Hey, you know, like most people on earth or a lot of people on earth, they're, they're doing just fine. You don't have to like publish 30 books and win an award and <laughs> you know, whatever the, whatever people tell themselves they need to do in order to be validated, you know? Right. Yeah. Like this, there's such a sense of, you know, for me of, um, needing some level of like, of, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, like a validation or of sort of like praise from the outside to like, to feel like validated inside or internally. And I think that that has been like something I've really come to see in myself, like over the last couple of months that I've, that I'm like, God, I need to like switch this because if that's how you set up sort of your, your way of like, um, being like content with yourself or having a sense of meaning, like you're setting yourself up to like really to, to fail or to be on like a real rocky journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great way to make yourself feel like shit, right? Cause somebody's always, yeah. somebody's always going to have more. Somebody's always going to be doing better. It just seems like a, mm-hmm. like, I don't think it's bad to have some ambition and I don't think it's bad to set some goals for yourself or to think of ways that you can make the most of your talents or whatever, but it just gets out of hand, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it, it's easy to sort of slide into a mode where, um, sort of obsessing about it or, or, holding yourself to standards that are kind of unhealthy uh, right. sim- simply because it seems normalized. And I think maybe hopefully this pandemic and the situation that we're in now is giving people an opportunity to press pause. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like I have noticed, you know, in interacting with friends here and there 
from a safe six foot distance <laughs> uh, <laughs> that friends of mine who I know as being the most like busy bodied, um, you know, I think we all have some element of it. So I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, I'm Mr. Chill. Uh, but I just noticed that people who are like hypersocial or just kind of the most busy in the day to day who have had to really downshift when I have interacted with them, I have seen, especially as the quarantine has dragged on just a kind of haunted look in their eyes or like a weariness and a discomfort. Uh, I think it's really hard for people like that to suddenly have to sit with themselves. I think a lot of people, I think all of us to some degree are kind of running from running from ourselves, you know, in some way. And the, when many of those options for running are foreclosed, it is bound to force you into some confrontations that you're not used to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, um, sitting with our, sitting with ourselves and with our own thoughts, um, is really, can be really frightening and deeply confronting. And, um, I think that, you know, we still have a lot of ways to, um, avoid that with social media and all the ways that we're plugged in digitally from our homes. But, you know, I think that there's something that's really, um, you know, I think for people that are more extroverted, who are kind of like what you're describing, I think that it's one, maybe the being distracted with the busybodyness of it. But I think also like when you lose those like human connections and those moments of like community, especially if you're somebody who's really fueled by that, I think like being confronted with your own kind of existential loneliness um, in the world is like a deeply like painful experience to have to sit with. That's right. That's right. That's right. I think as somebody who's like a little bit more introverted, I mean, I have a little bit of both, but I think I probably err on the side of introversion. Um, like I can, I can hide in my garage alone all day long, every day. No problem. Like, no, mm -hmm. I love to have these conversations and I love to, I like to hang out with people, but, um, I don't know, maybe I'm like wired better to, or I'm wired to, to more easily adapt to a situation like this. But, um, some people like that is their fuel. And mm -hmm. it sucks to have that fuel cut off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I always thought of myself as <clears throat> a little bit more of a extrovert because I because I'm outgoing and I do love, like you said, to have conversations like this. And I'm, you know, feel deeply connected to like a handful of close friends who I talk to very regularly um, and who are like kind of a really a part of my day to day life. But I've also realized that I love alone time. And I do think in some ways that this has felt very relieving to me to not feel the pressure to, to like do some sort of social maintenance because I just know like everybody has to take a pause and taking this pause and being able to sit with myself a little bit more has in some ways like felt a little bit relieving. I mean, there've been definitely impossibly hard moments and I'm very ready for this to not, to not have this like self-imposed isolation or like non-self-imposed isolation, you know, sort of like virus imposed. Um, <laughs> You're like, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be isolated, I want to be in charge of it, you know? Like exactly. Exactly. But I have realized that like, I do see certain people 
in my life that I'm close to struggle with like the disconnection a lot more. You know, I think I can like have some deep conversations on the phone, go on some like long, you know, long, like socially distant walks and feel like ready to like go back and kind (laughs) of have some time with like my thoughts and my books and shit like that. Yeah, um, I don't need to. I don't need to hang out with you. This is fine. This is plenty. Just us yeah. on the phone. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like who wants to? Who wants to actually hang out? For God's sakes. <sighs> yeah, but man, people who are like total like ninety percent extroverts, I feel for them. Yeah, I know exactly, and I, I, uh, I think that's who I'm talking about. I think there are also people. I don't know, but like maybe it's good. I, I guess like sometimes I question the hmm. I think if you're in meaningful social interaction with people that you're close to fine but I think there is uh, something that we sometimes might confuse with extroversion that is simply just like busy chattiness or something mm-hmm. that is kind of like performs a function not dissimilar to like me diving into the internet for you know an hour just to sort of like numb myself out or whatever and I think when you don't have that option, I guess you can always, the, the internet is always there for you, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the, the busy chattiness might not be. And if that's your go-to and suddenly it's removed, then I think you're left to contend with yourself. And that might not necessarily be a bad thing, even if it is not entirely pleasant. Um, yes. Like I think, yeah. I think like talking um, to circle back to what we were talking about with regard to reading habits during the pandemic and the way that you know, sort of found ourselves reading more books and finding comfort in fiction and wanting to sort of get immersed in a different world. Um, I think, you know, it's this notion of, of um, cultivating a rich inner life and like actually deriving some meaning and enjoyment from examining difficult emotions and feelings and deep questions and difficult questions. Mm-hmm. Like this is the terrain of somebody who is writerly. And I think that you know, most of us in this game are semi-comfortable there, or at least comfortable being uncomfortable there, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe just have practice at it to a degree that many people do not. And I think that this situation might be enforcing, like the the kind of writerly temperament on people who are totally not designed for it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting there's something there's there i think there's like an essay to be written about that you know like the pandemic has made poets of us all or something (laughs) (laughs) i think you should write it Uh, yeah right i i i I cannot tell you how many times i have proposed a fairly interesting i think essay on this show and have just been like someone needs to write that and like yet i'm not writing them do you know what i'm saying like i'm too right. i'm too lazy to actually do it but like somebody can somebody flesh this out for me and get back to me <laughs> i'll see what i can do i'll start taking some notes <laughs> yes please thank you and just like footnote me you know like, like dedicate the essay to me great yes <laughs> uh, so okay so you're in portland you have this book coming out you know or it's dropped and then uh, are you working on anything else? Have you been able to channel like pandemic energy into a new project or are you simply in like celebration and promotion mode for this book? Um, I have been um, definitely doing a lot of uh, uh, kind of publicity and work around like the book and, you know, answering interview questions and, you know, kind of writing essays that are companion pieces and things like that. But 
Um, I, I have actually been writing um, some new stuff. I was I was actually recently asked to write this um, from I was this artist that he's a Norwegian artist and he's publishing a book about um, a uh, a person's transition and it's like a photojournalism piece but uh, he asked me to write like a fictionalized short story that could kind of work in this art book that's about like six to seven thousand words and you know so I've been working on that recently which is kind of like a fun ask to um, kind of set my imagination towards and um, I've also started what might be a new novel and have actually found that writing during the pandemic has been like really grounding and and that's something that's so familiar to me. So to be able to do that has been able to like, I've, it's given a sense of normalcy to all of this and kind of uh, like it, something that's just felt like a red thread that gets to also like go through this time. And I think if I wasn't writing, it would feel even harder. Yeah, I agree. I think it's good to be busy and keep a schedule and just uh, try to make productive use of time. You know, yeah. I, I think that that is very important. I think people who might be free, you know, kind of freestyling too much, you know, when you, when too much, you have too much time to yourself and you're not doing anything. What is it? Uh, like idle hands are the devil's what's that's that old saying, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like, I think it's idle hands are the devil's work or wait. Oh yeah. What is that saying? Idle hands just, are the devil's business or something. Or yeah. Something. I don't yeah. Know. Um, but yeah, it just, it, you wind up, you know, you'll, you'll either do shitty things or more likely you'll just get yourself, you know, spiraling in some sort of like thought, like whirlpool of negative thinking or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and I get that a lot of people are having a hard time writing right now. And I mean, I think if you, if that's not something that feels good, then like take that pressure off and, you know, do something else and you don't have to be writing. But for me, it's just felt like something I've had to do. And you're going to stick around in Portland through the summer? Like, do you have any summer plans? Um, I don't have any summer plans. I, you know, I wish that I did, but, um, you know, the, with the pandemic, it seems kind of like, I don't know. I don't really like, I can't go far afield at least. So I'm sticking close to Portland for now. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I don't know what, like, what are you going to do? I know people, I know. some people are talking about like renting an Airbnb and yeah, maybe do that. I, I mean, I can sort of see that. I'm also like, oh, you just to go in and like Clorox everything. You, like, don't you? Like, I'm not going to go into some rented house and. I know. Just, I don't know. It just seems like a, he a headache. I'd rather stay home. I think it's still like this moment where we're not really sure what how the virus is shared and contracted. I still think there's a lot of information that is like. Not, I mean, there is misinformation, but I think it just hasn't been around a lot long enough for us to know, like, what are safe practices to engage in. You know, I think we're hearing now, like, maybe it's being in an indoor space without masks on with other people and surfaces are not as dangerous. But it's hard to know, like, if that will change in a month and it'll be like surfaces are the worst thing. Right, you know? right. right. <laughs> Right. Don't ever touch them again. I just, you know, I go for bike rides or walks outside. I'm not really worried about being outside. Yeah, me either. You know, like that doesn't, I mean, I'm not going to stand next to somebody I don't know and, you know, like be mouth breathing on them or something. But like, I think that, uh, <laughs> which is what I usually do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Non-pandemic, I'm mouth breathing on strangers every chance I get. But uh, this time, I, you know, I feel like a bike is great because 
you can kind of weave in and out and it's easier to keep distance and it's just fun. I like riding a bike, but, um, I don't know. I kind of also, I look at these protests and again, you know, you got to date this early June. So by the time this airs, I think we will see the evidence. I'm going to just predict that there's going to be another outbreak. I don't see how there couldn't be, Mm -hmm. um, based on the proximity of people to one another. And I think it's not just because of the protests, but I think it's just a general fatigue that people have with quarantine. It's just, I think it's, it's an unnatural state for human beings to have to exist in for too long. And there's also, and I'm, you know, I don't know if you felt this, but there's kind of part of me that's like, quit being such babies. Like, you know, yeah. like the, the elderly people, disabled people, um, you know, people of color, uh, they're, they are the ones who are bearing the brunt of this and are dying most often. And just, mm-hmm. you know, you're just fed up because you can't go, you know, get your nails done the way you normally do or whatever it is. Like, it, it's like, people got to check themselves a little bit. Like we, we have to maybe make changes so that we can protect people. And I guess I'm concerned because there's so much in the news that this like very real pandemic that has killed over a hundred thousand people in like three months mm-hmm. uh, is just sort of been pushed to the side. I think in a lot of people's minds, I think people are just so hungry to return to normal yeah. that they're willing to kind of fall into a state of denial. And I worry, and hopefully my worries are misplaced, but I worry that there's going to be like another surge of cases and it's going to spread and it's going to be hard to contain, you know? Well, I think that that is what's probably going to happen. You know, I've even like, I just, it's, I think it's very, very, very hard for people, you know, community animals as we are. And as we were talking about earlier in the podcast to self, I, to isolate themselves for this long. And I think, you know, the weather's getting hotter and, I recently moved houses and, you know, in doing that, like I had to go to the store more often. Like I have really not been to the store at much at all in the last couple of months. Like I can go to the grocery store once a week and that's really kind of it. Um, and so I, but I was like going to Home Depot and different places that were open and I was just seeing like, there are a lot of people still out, like a lot, even in Portland, which is like, has really stringent, like high standards for what they're doing. And there's a lot of people like, you know, inside these areas who like didn't really have their mask on all the way or were wearing no mask. And I also get that, you know, it's like a hot day. You're an employee, you're working eight hours. You have this like mask on that's hard to breathe through. Like that's tough work. And, you know, my mom lives in Alabama and Al- like Tuscaloosa, Alabama has completely reopened. <laughs> you know, people are just like acting like it's fine again now. And I do think that like what all of the, you know, scientists and epidemiologists are saying is that if things kind of still don't really like they just still stay low, but like if there are still so many new cases throughout the summer, we're going to be hit with like a huge backlash in the fall um, and second wave. So, you know, I know that like Germany and Italy got their cases down to like less than a hundred a day. And the U S is still, I think having 20,000 new cases every day. So it's a fucking nightmare. And if like there was some, you know, you, you read all these different things, but I was reading some projection where it was like, you know, if we don't get our shit together, we could have 70% of the country catching this. And wow. If 70% of the country catch this, it's like 200 million people. And if there's, wow. a, if there's a 2% death rate, that means 4 million people are going to die. Oh my God. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's worth like doing the math and trying to think this through. And, and 
uh, it just a, it's a big disaster, and I think it's worth flagging. And and because this is going to air after the fact, you know, you and I have the benefit of either sounding uh, prophetic or hopefully being proven wrong. You know, so hopefully maybe something will, maybe the hot weather will mitigate against it. Maybe the fact that all of these pro, you know protests are happening outside will you know slow things down uh to a, to a degree that they would not if everybody was indoors or something i don't know mm-hmm. i hope so i hope that we're proven wrong and i hope that you know i mean life is full of surprises anything could happen but <laughs> well and fauci Fau- uh, dr fauci uh you know the guy at the uh, cdc or whatever it is he uh he said that um that they're expecting to have 100 million vaccine doses ready by december um, so that's good news. Like I saw that. Yeah. Hopefully that's good. That's great news. Yeah. So if, if people can start to get vaccinated, even if it's just like an annual flu shot or something, then, you know, you can at least feel like you've got some protection and I don't know. I don't know how it will work. Cause like the flu vaccine only kind of works. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like it depends on what, like <laughs> yeah. on what strain of the flu, you know, hits uh, in any particular year. And then like, it only protects against certain ones, but, um, you know, We'll see. Hopefully they get a vaccine that's that's pretty effective and can get people back to normal so that we don't have to shelter. Uh, I hope so. All right. I hope so. Well, listen, I'm happy for you uh, amid all of this to see you publishing this book and, uh, you know, having such success and reintegrating yourself into American life. I know it's not nearly as cool as being like the American expatriate in Amsterdam. Um, <laughs> like your brand has taken a huge hit. <laughs> now you're like, you know, you're like, oh, I'm in Portland. I live in Portland. I'm an American, Ugh, you know, but uh, I guess it was probably bound to happen at some point, you know, it's true. Yes. Um, so I hope we get to cross paths again in person before uh too long and i wish you well on that short story that you're working on uh the new novel are there any hints as to what it's about like can you at least tell us what superpower your character has like what what's super power is uh is is tbd but uh, it's kind of like a queer friendship road novel road trip novel okay good yeah that works that works well it's nice talking to you uh you know hang in there and stay safe and best of luck. Yeah, thank you, Brad. It's been so great to talk to you as always. And um, yeah, stay safe and as, as we just continue forth. All right, so there we have Genevieve Hudson. Their new novel is called Boys of Alabama, available from Live Right Publishing. I'm telling you, this book is getting great reviews. It's a lot of excitement. You can find Genevieve online at Genevieve-Hudson.com. Genevieve-Hudson.com. You can follow them on Twitter. The handle there is at Jen Hudson. I believe there's also an Instagram. One more time, the novel is called Boys of Alabama. Go get your copy immediately. If you would like to support this program... You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I would appreciate that. Every single episode of this program is offered freely. More than 650 episodes, all made available for free. It's a listener-supported show. Support the show if you can. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at other PPL 
letters.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Maybe I will respond to your letter on the air. What do you think of that? This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Everything's free. Go get the app. It's available wherever apps are available. It's a quality app. Thanks to today's sponsors, the Storybound Podcast, Doubleday, and uh, Penguin Random House Audio. Coming up on the show, I have uh, conversations in store with Nikki Dolson and with Gene Keong Frazier. Got a lot of good ones here in the pipeline. So stay tuned. Some good things in the offing here at the Other People Podcast. I hope you're doing okay. Oh, yeah. I like my uh, weekly reminder. Register to vote. Register to vote. Sign up for vote by mail if you need to do that. Register your friends to vote. Get ready for the election in November. We got to vote. We got to register people to vote. I'm all for some. I want some sanity. Does anybody have any sanity? (laughs) 